One of the reasons I think it's important is because I think that the Deseret characters, I think that they were inspired. I mean, the, we're, we're, we're taught in the church and to, to, to recognize the inspiration of, of the early leaders of the church. And you know, the early leaders of the church thought this was important. So a lot of people say that the Deseret Alphabet was a failure and they kind of laugh at it a little bit. Like, oh, here's the thing that the early brethren came up with that was just, you know, floated like a lead balloon, right? Um, but Neil and I joke sometimes, or maybe we're just half joking, that the Deseret Alphabet was actually intended to come back, right? It was, it's intended for use now uh, because it is so much simpler to use it. Uh, it's not an expensive process to use it now. And turns out Latter-day Saints are using the Deseret Alphabet to do some interesting stuff. Okay, nerds, stay with me. It's a whole hour about the Deseret Alphabet, and it's so great. And I know what you're thinking. First of all, I don't even know what the Deseret Alphabet is. Second of all, you're thinking, well, how do they talk about this for an hour? And just, can can we all get to the point now where, where we just sort of trust me? Have I earned your trust with the 600 episodes? Can we just say... Listen, we we trust you. There will be something valuable in each of the episodes that you share, even the ones where you scratch your head and go, "All right, you're going to have to you're going to have to really prove it on this one, but know that I'll deliver." Can we all say that? Can we? Can we collectively come to the table? I love the Deseret Alphabet. I find it fascinating. We definitely get some uh, some into the weeds in this episode, and I love it. You know that I'm over here nerding out, geeking out about it, and I don't need you to love it the way that I do, but I sure do want you to enjoy it because I learned a ton along the way about the Deseret Alphabet in this episode of The Cultural Hall. Jesus landed to live righteously! It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm excited because this is one of those nerdy episodes where admittedly, I feel like if we walk into it and say, this is something that maybe not a lot of people know about, uh, that that gives us permission to go really into the weeds with what we're talking about, uh, talking about the Deseret Alphabet. And some of you already are going, I don't know what that even is. Uh, I'm excited to be joined uh, by Ryan and Neil, uh, two professors that uh, I have now poorly introduced. Ryan, why don't you introduce yourself first? Okay, well, uh, my name is Ryan Shostad. I'm a professor at the University of Illinois in the Department of Linguistics. And um, yeah, that's me. And then uh, Neil? I am Neil Davis. I'm a a teaching professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Illinois. And so together, you two have kind of collaborated and, and have this passion project around the Deseret Alphabet. Uh, would one of you, probably Ryan, for those that have no introduction to what the Deseret Alphabet even is, give us sort of an onboard into this? Sure. So fairly early on, uh, the Latter-day Saints became interested in quickly writing down the words of their leaders, particularly Joseph Smith. And so there was an interest in developing shorthand while the saints were still living at Nauvoo. And there was one uh, gentleman who became very well educated in what was known as Pittman shorthand. And he later became, his name was George Watt. He later became a secretary to Brigham Young, a personal secretary to Brigham Young. In any event, early on, they became an interest in this idea of writing stuff down quickly. And that sort of morphed over time into 
kind of reforming the spelling of the English language. So in the 19th century, there were actually a lot of people who were interested in what was known as orthographic reform. People sort of thought that the English writing system was sort of a disaster. It needed to be fixed. And as with many things with the early saints, they were very interested in this kind of utopian ideal of recreating society. And so among their many social projects, which I'm sure you talk about occasionally on this podcast, mm -hmm. one, of their social pod uh, one of their social projects was to reinvent uh, the writing of the English language. It sounds pretty far-fetched, but that was really what they wanted to do. And um, I'm sure we can talk about the different motives and things like that as we go along. But in general, what wound up happening is that under President Brigham Young, uh, there was a real push and a lot of investment in um, creating type, for example, to be able to publish uh, material, LDS scripture in particular, in the Deseret Alphabet. So by 1869, there was a full edition of the Book of Mormon uh, that was produced in the Deseret Alphabet. And then the long story, is, or the short story, is that people sort of got, um, it never really caught on. Um, that's why we don't see it around Salt Lake much anymore, right? Um, but at the time, apparently, through the through the 1860s, at least, uh, you could see shop signs. There were reports there were shop signs written in the Desert Alphabet, street signs. Um, and then it just kind of, it sort of went away. I mean, people say that it died with Brigham Young, but that's not totally accurate. Brigham Young himself was pretty dissatisfied with it by the end of the story uh, and had said some things that were kind of disparaging about the work that had been done in it. Um, and he had actually sent some, he had sent Orson Pratt to, uh, do the Book of Mormon in a different orthography, yet another orthography uh, called the, Pitno, the Pittman um, orthotype. And Brigham Young died while Orson Pratt was on that trip, and they never pr printed the Book of Mormon in that other type, and they never printed anything um, officially in the Desert Alphabet after that time. So, so it, it seems natural to me that someone who studies linguistics would be fascinated by the Deseret Alphabet uh, and, and to be able to give such a great introduction. Again, there are people I know, Ryan, that are listening to this, and I hope it's okay that I call you Ryan. I'll certainly call you uh, yeah, whatever. Um, but that people are listening to this and, and already just on that level sort of are minds blown. But then I look at you, Neil, and you're a, you're a computer guy that's partnered up with this linguistics guy. How did you get into this? This, uh, you know, this, this desert alphabet geekdom, nerddom, where do you join this whole thing? So I had actually long had an interest in linguistics. Uh, I flirted with the idea of getting a linguistics undergrad many years ago. And so I'd always been fascinated with alphabets and representations as symbol systems. Uh, and so over time, I had collected uh, little bits of information about a variety of different alphabets, about the history of letters and everything. At some point in that history, I happened across uh, you know, the, the actual Deseret alphabet. And it was one curiosity among many. Now, at some point, uh, I discovered that Deseret alphabet had been implemented as a, as a modern computer standard, uh, which we may talk a little bit more about later on as well. Uh, and with that capability in place, it meant that you had a way of representing Deseret documents in a way that wasn't dependent on the particular fonts you had installed on your system, and it wasn't dependent on, on handwriting. And so this was what ultimately, I think, allowed Deseret to bridge the gap between the 19th century efforts 
and essentially a long period where it was just this obscurity, uh, this, this curiosity that occasionally people would encounter, but there was really nothing more to do with into the modern computer age when we are actually able to consistently represent and produce documents, produce transcripts, um, understand more about what they were trying to do and carry it forward as a living tradition as well. How much do you think this is, Ryan, of uh, just the saints uh, as they came west, they wanted their own land and not be bothered, that they were just looking for their, their own identity and, and wanted to find that within their own, essentially, language or at least their own symbology or alphabet? It's a really interesting question because people sort of have gone back and forth on the question of how much did the saints do this to um, really set themselves apart? How much do they do it to just keep secrets? I mean, as we, we know, I mean, any student of the history of the church knows that the church was accused of a great deal of secrecy <laughs> early on, and probably with good reason. Um, we modern members of the church are often going you know, to repeat the mantra, you know, it's, it's sacred, not secret, right? Right. But the very fact that they say that sort of suggests that there's kind of, it's kind of a defensive posture, right? There was a feeling that the church kept secrets. Okay. And so the Deseret Alphabet on a certain level looks like um, it's a secret code. Mm -hmm. The problem with that hypothesis is that every time the church published something in the Deseret Alphabet, they were very scrupulous about publishing the key to the Deseret Alphabet right in the front of it. <laughs> and so you can say it's kind of half and half, right? Because you can say, no, they were willing to let people learn it for sure, but it would take work. I mean, you really just don't sit down and read a Deseret document. It takes a little while. It's not a huge amount of effort. I mean, I think it can kind of be brought in line with maybe how we think about, even in modern Mormonism, how we think about conversion, right? It's like, everybody's welcome. There's a couple of things you're gonna to have to learn. Uh, you're gonna to have to pick this up and you know drop this habit and do this sort of thing. And so maybe that's how they conceived of it is that it would be um, something along those lines, like a kind of trivial level of, of security uh, as far as church documents go. I mean, some of the, you know, the, the, the correspondence in Brigham Young's office was kept in the Deseret Alphabet, for example. And so that leads me to wonder, you know, there's, that's kind of a level of security, right? It's kind of a level of encryption. Like I say, a trivial level of encryption because they let everybody know uh, how to decode the documents. So to be honest with you, and, and I, Neil, I'm sure has opinions on this too, I don't really know for sure what their, um, I have ideas, but they weren't super explicit. Besides talking about English orthography reform, they weren't really explicit about why they wanted to do this. What do you think, Neil? I think that they're, I think it has to be situated in the history. Uh, you know, Ryan's mentioned orthographic reform, but there's also various spelling reform efforts, you know, dating back from at least the 18th century in English. Uh, this resulted most successfully, most famously in Noah Webster's uh, English Dictionary in America, which did successfully get Americans to start spelling certain words, notably color and humor and other things, uh, draft, uh, differently than they were spelled in British English. <laughs> and it stuck, but it was it was also trying to grapple with this problem that the alphabet we use for English isn't really adequate for English, right? And it's hardly unique to English, this problem, uh, you know, French and other languages, uh, Danish. They've had this problem where they're using this alphabet that is no longer adequate to the actual phonetic needs of what you're trying to say. And 
there was a time when publishing technology was widely distributed, when there were a lot of enlightenment ideals in the air, when people were very interested in this problem of, you know, can we create new systematic ways of teaching and presenting material that will make it more straightforward for people to understand uh, quickly or better. Uh, so, you know, some of this ties back into some very interesting ideas about um, early ideas of calculation and, you know, can you, can you write down things in a certain way that yields the correct answer? You know, and this, this goes back to Leibniz and others. Um, and that's a whole other can of worms, <laughs> but people were just willing to play with things like the notion of an alphabet in a way that, you know, for at least the past hundred years or so before the internet age, people didn't really seem to be willing to do. Probably the last major effort uh, in, in this vein is something like Shavian, George Bernard Shaw's phonetic reform. Um, well, it's, it's an orthographic reform, right? Like it, it's, it's an entire uh, new system for writing English in the early 20th century that's similar to what Deseret was trying to do and also has a small coterie of fans who are dedicated to the project. So I think it's much better understood as a utopian ideal, the same way that Joseph Smith wanted to build cities, mm -hmm. right? And he wanted to build perfect ideal cities, uh, you know, not, not capital B perfect, but they were in the image of what God had tried to do, right? It was an act of sub-creation. It was an act of mimicking what God was trying to do by setting in order the things that had been set at odds by the the long work of man in the fall so so ryan is the alphabet that good is the deseret alphabet not capital p perfect but lowercase p perfect that that's really yeah i i, I don't think i've in neil and my conversations i don't know that we've he's ever put it like that explicitly before it's kind of an act of self-creation i like the idea a lot um i don't i mean the the fact that they were disappointed with it they were disappointed with it in a number of ways. So one of the issues with it, which has long been noted by critics, is that um, it's really hard to, I mean, aesthetically, it's, it's, it's displeasing, okay? It's kind of hard on the eye to read a Deseret document. And one of the reasons uh, typeface designers have noted is that because it's because it lacks ascenders and descenders. So the little stuff that sort of hangs above and below the line, like the, the line, the, you know, the extending tail on a P, or the tall uh, cap on an H or something like that. So Desert really doesn't have those. And so, um, but they did that explicitly. They did that, again, very utilitarian, very 19th century Mormon. Um, we don't want to have to keep recreating the type. And when you, because making type is a big deal, right? It's an investment uh, to forage type. And as you use type over and over again, it's precisely those ascenders and descenders that wear off, right? Because they're thin and they stick out and et cetera. So um, from that point of view, it was kind of like perfection in type, or that's what they thought it was. They didn't necessarily think about how, you know, how displeasing this would be to the eye. Uh, so that's kind of from the aesthetic point of view. Um, your, your question about how good of an alphabet is it maybe from the point of view of linguistics, um, it certainly covers all of the, all of the sounds of, of the English language. Um, one of the issues, though, that I think that doesn't get mentioned as much is that the brethren, even though they were, they were very sophisticated in thinking about this stuff, I think as sophisticated as anybody was in thinking about this in the 19th century, they don't seem to have considered the possibility that people would use it to write the way they sounded. 
So in linguistics, we talk about something called an idiolect, right? We all have an idiolect. Uh, that is to say, an individual way of pronouncing things. We sort of converge in terms of dialects so that we mostly understand each other, and then those dialects converge into something even bigger that you know, we, we call a language or a language variety or something like that. It gets complicated. But the, notion, the, the, the point is, if anybody sits down to use a phonetic alphabet, and the desert alphabet is a phonetic alphabet, it's supposed to be one sound for one symbol, and it does that fairly well. What that means is that I might write something down differently than Neil or than, or than you, right? Uh, and certainly somebody from Lang Lancashire in the 19th century would probably have written something differently than somebody from Boston or somebody from Scotland. And so I don't think they necessarily knew what they might be unleashing by, by, by making a phonetic alphabet. There wasn't a dictionary of Deseret spellings. So they used the most recent um, edition of Webster's unabridged to do the Book of Mormon project, right? So they were literally following as best as they could, um, because even dictionaries don't solve everything for you. They were really trying to follow that standard. But the fact of the matter is, um, if you look at different Deseret texts, for example, they, they published stuff in the Deseret News, pieces of scripture, and then they published the Book of Mormon, and then there are diary entries, and there's letters, and it turns out people spelled the same words with different Deseret characters. I don't think that had reached the full flower of sort of like, gosh, this is a this is a problem for them to recognize that. But certainly if they had used it and implemented it more in the schools um, and seen what people did with it, I think they would have figured out pretty quickly that they had a, a tiger by the tail. Because what, if it, what they really wanted was some kind of utopian vision of how to spell English, what they had actually unleashed was the ability for everyone to spell English the way they wanted to spell it, right? <laughs> so I teach my students something in my phonetics classes, I teach them something called the International Phonetic Alphabet. And people are not a lot more familiar with it now because of Wikipedia. You go to Wikipedia and there's often a, a, a pronunciation in, in, of, of foreign words or whatever. And they're these funky little symbols, right? They emerged essentially from that same 19th century uh, uh, motif that, that, that Neil was talking about, right? That people were interested in designing different alphabets. So they designed the International Phonetic Alphabet. It's still used by linguists today. Um, and so when I teach my students how to use that, it's, it's kind of a fine line between teaching them, this is the way you're supposed to spell things in the International Phonetic Alphabet, and this is how you use the phonetic alphabet to describe what people say, uh, to write it down faithfully. And so there are examples of people I think, uh, who used the Desert Alphabet faithfully in their diary, for example, to transcribe their own speech. But it differs from the kind of Deseret Alphabet document that you find, for example, in the 1869 Book of Mormon. So there were typographic issues, but I think there were also some really pretty fundamental um, linguistic issues that would have become more challenging if they had continued to use it. I want to take a break real quick. When we come back, we'll pick it right back up where we are here in the second block of the Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com. Won't you please go? That is if you are in the market for a DJ. Now, I haven't done a new one of these ads for a little bit, and I have to tell you it's been pretty cool. I've been able to do some events for some lifers or converts here in the Cultural Hall. I uh, got to do a wedding back in, what was that, February now? Is that what? Man, this year is flying by. Anyway... 
If you'd like to uh, be able to party with me, that's some offer. You can go to bestdjinutah.com. We talk about how me being able to be at your event, playing music, coordinating things, keeping an eye on the clock, all this stuff might make your event go better. I do a lot of weddings, but I can also do birthday parties. We can just hang out and listen to music if you want as well. Uh, But you can't do any of it if you don't hop online and go to Best djinutah.com. There's a form there that lets me know a little bit more about your event. And then who knows, who knows, we could be partying together very soon. Go to bestdjinutah.com. We have NVIDIA and AMD video cards in stock with complete systems at pclaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, where else would you find a linguistics conversation about the Deseret alphabet? I would contend very few other places. That's what people love about the Cultural Hall. And uh, I I just thank everyone who listens to us. Uh, if you have not yet left a review for the Cultural Hall, wherever you get this episode, take a moment and say, you know what? I really appreciate the uh, depth and breadth of the topics that they talk about. You don't have to say depth and breadth. You can use your own words. And you know what? If there's a way, put it in Deseret Alphabet in your review. I would love to see that. That would be tremendous. Uh, the point is we would love for you to review the show. Please do so. You've wanted to. You just haven't. Let today be the day that you do it. Uh, now, Ryan, as I understand it, you 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 have kind of a a fascinating story in which you found a Deseret Alphabet Book of Mormon, something along that. Walk me through that story. Well, in just doing research for the project, uh, I, I was giving a, I gave a talk at the University of Utah back in February, and I was just preparing for the talk. And, you know, as we all do, you just Google around. And I just happened to find a notice at a rare bookseller in Salt Lake that they were selling a, a first edition Book of Mormon in the Deseret Alphabet. They don't come up that often. Um, uh, there were only, uh, I think there were only 500 that were printed, and then several hundred of them were destroyed through water loss. They were kept, uh, I, I think they were being kept somewhere at the University of Utah, but I'm not totally certain. And then the remaining copies, um, the ones that I've seen, uh, they seem to have been um, distributed by the church historian's office mm-hmm. at some point. And so uh, this one was uh, being being sold out of the rare bookseller in Salt Lake. I contacted our rare book and manuscript librarian at the University of Illinois. You know, Illinois being a, a place where the saints lived for quite a, quite a while and quite a, a few important developments in their history took place here. The University of Illinois Press has, also has a, a great track record of publishing a lot of the new Mormon history, uh, you know, from the 1970s onward. And so I thought it was just kind of a, a good deal. I contacted the, the library and they just snapped it up. They, they bought it. Um, and so Neil and I have been able to, to peruse that document. And uh, it's, uh, it's really cool to be able to, to, to hold it and leaf through it and look at what the type really looks like. It's a crude question, but everybody wants to know how much did it sell for? How much did the university buy it for? Um, I think it was about, do you remember the number, Neil? I don't remember. Uh, it was in, somewhere. In the thousands or hundreds, tens of thousands? Maybe no, even it was, ballpark it. Was, it was south of 10,000. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I know some of those first editions, like if it's first edition, first edition Book of Mormon, we're into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but that's right. not what we're talking about here. No, it's it's not that valuable. Not yet, at least. Yeah. That, that's the number that stuck in my head is the... First edition, eighteen thirty, but yeah. yeah, the first edition, like you say, that's that's in the that's in the hundred. 
range. And then you you queued up at the very beginning of this that as you were sort of speaking about this project, uh, I don't think that we've done, and I'll blame, I'll, I will take full credit for not doing very well about talking about this, what this project even is that you guys are, are undertaking and sharing and, and putting out into the world. I just find it fascinating. You, why don't you do that one, Neil? Okay. So we have a, we have a project um, joint endeavor called the Illinois Deseret Consortium, in which we are trying to collect and make available uh, sets of texts and tools for working with texts. Um, some of the things that have been published so far include transcripts of original documents and some of the research that Ryan's been doing linguistically on the, the phonology of, of the speakers and the authors of some of the early documents. Uh, we have an early, um, you know, it, it works, but it's, it's, a, it's a beta version of a font that is designed to be more readable in long running copy, long running text where you're looking at text for um, pages and pages at a time that will try to get away from some of the, so, so traditional uh, Deseret alphabet fonts tend to look uh, more like slab serifs. Uh, you think, think like Wild West saloon titles where, where you have you know, the, these capital letters that have very heavy um, vertical lines where people, it's almost like they're holding the pen horizontally while they write with a nib. And so mm. they tend to be very blocky and, and visually dense to look at. It's almost like looking at Cyrillic, or, you know, Russian or, or Ukrainian or something. And so we're, we're trying to make something that is a little bit lighter and feels more like reading Greek or something that, that's closer to a Latin alphabet. And so it will, it will have a, a centers and decenters. This has been recognized by some other font designers as well. And there started to be some uh, experimentation in this regard. And there, there's not a consensus yet on exactly what this should look like. So it, it's kind of like the early days of print when people were trying out all sorts of different things, you know, in the 14 and 1500s to say like, what's the right way to build a, build a typeface. Uh, you know, it took, it took a long time to figure out what that should look like. And obviously there've been trends over time. So anyway, that's, that's a thing that we've been getting into. Um, we're working on a tool to do uh, automatic character recognition. Of, so we'll be able to do scans and then get uh, products out of it. Uh, that are transcripts in Unicode Deseret of what that looks like. Uh, we do have a tool that I need to I need to post the most recent version that will do uh, conversions between the phonetic and the Deseret representations of different words. So you're you're able to do quick quick translations back and forth uh, if you if you have the the Deseret alphabet standard representation there as well. So uh, I always love to ask this question, especially of people that are so entrenched in into what they're studying and what they're doing and. And you know, scholars about this, which the two of you uh, certainly are, uh, but but to just the the you know the standard run of the mill individual, or even a standard run of the mill individual within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, like why why does why does this matter? And I don't mean that in any sort of like guys, what are we doing here? But I know that you have a, a passion, and that this means something. What is it? Well, I think that writing has power. I think that there's something about something really clicked for humans when they started writing down language, right? Whether it was ideas as originally, you know, originally and then later the sounds of language. You know, when ethnographers, when they um, encounter groups of people who are non-literate or semi-literate and they present them with writing, 
they don't immediately think, oh, this is letters, this is sounds, you know, this is this is language. In fact, what they do is they, this is well documented, they tend to associate writing with divinity, with spirit, with heritage, with the authority of the person or group that has presented them with the writing. And so I think that there's actually something special about the Deseret Alphabet that has to do with the uh, cultural heritage of, of the, the followers of Joseph Smith. And, and I think that preserving that is something that is important to me and, and making it available for uh, a digital generation to use. Certainly a lot of that groundwork has already been done. I mean, the main stuff was, you know, getting it in the Unicode block. That's really important. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of scanned texts out there that you can read, but you can't search through them, right? And it makes it, there's certain kind of impediments to learning it and putting it into practice. So one of the reasons I think it's important is because I think that the Deseret characters, um, I think that they were inspired. I mean, the, we're, we're, we're taught in the church and to, to, to recognize the inspiration of, of the early leaders of the church. And, you know, the early leaders of the church thought this was important. So a lot of people say that the Deseret Alphabet was a failure, and they kind of laugh at it a little bit. Like, oh, here's the thing that the early brethren came up with that was just, you know, floated like a lead balloon, right? Mm -hmm. um, but Neil and I joke sometimes, or maybe we're just half joking, that the Deseret Alphabet was actually intended to come back, right? It was, it's intended for use now. Uh, because it is so much simpler to use it. Uh, it's not an expensive process to use it now. And turns out, Latter-day Saints are using the Deseret Alphabet to do some interesting stuff. Um, and uh, so that's that's my answer. What about you, Neil? So I don't think it will, you know, it's not coming back as a as a major alphabet in, in the world. It's not, it's not going to be used that way. And I don't think it would be, um, really worth the effort to even make an argument that people should do it there. You know, if you wanted to, to solve the problem that it was designed to solve, uh, I think there are probably going to be better systematic ways of building orthographic reform systems or, or you know, wh whatever you want. Um, I think there's a lot to the cultural heritage aspect. Uh, this is, you know, if you look at the early history of Deseret, it's the intersection of a lot of interesting people's ideas and work. So um, George um, George Watt, George D. Watt, who is one of the principal authors of it. Uh, you probably you may recall the story when um, Heber C. Kimball and, and these others were in England, and they had a foot race to determine who was going to be the first saint baptized in England. Mm -hmm. uh, George D. Watt is the one who won that foot race. So, you know, later on, he becomes the principal designer of the Deseret Alphabet. And, and uh, you know, Orson Pratt is, is deeply involved with this. Um, it gets used by the Jacob Hamblin mission down into the Hopi. Uh, so it, it gives you this, this interesting cross-section of Utah in the 1850s, 1860s timeframe that, that touches on a lot of interesting people. So there, there's a historical inherit and cultural heritage aspect to it that is valuable. Um, Today, I think that, you know, uh, learning it, using it has given me ways of, for instance, reading the Book of Mormon more closely. Reading the Book of Mormon in Deseret is a qualitatively different experience 
because it forces me into a mix of trying to explicitly recognize each word as I come upon it and also double checking sort of my half remembered uh, reminiscence about what that passage actually said. Hmm. And so you it, it forces you to engage with the text a little bit more closely than scanning it in regular Roman type would allow you to do. And Ryan's read that much more extensively than I have, and I, I believe he's expressed a similar sentiment to me in the past as well. One of the things that, and th- this seems, I mean, you guys really give me this idea of just like this love and this adoration and, 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 and all of those things. And I think that if I'm being completely honest with the two of you, part of my fascination with it is I just think it seems sort of mysterious and cool. And I know talking to, to, to some members of the church and friends of mine who sort of feel, you know, similarly, like we, we didn't know all that we've shared within the time that we've been together, but we're like, we have our own alphabet. Cool. And, and just love being able to, to have, like, it almost feels like it puts us in a, like a, a Da Vinci Codian type way where it's like, maybe there's the alphabet that leads to where eternal life would be. And, you know, we sort of walk out these grand things all because we just have this thing that isn't known about by very many isn't able to be read by even fewer and that is our very own i i, I just think it's it's it all of the things that you said and just kind of cool yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't discourage any of your listeners from being fascinated by it using it in art writing with it um i mean there was a movie uh, kind of a cult classic from the 90s uh called uh plan 10 from outer space it was directed by Trent Harris. I don't know if you've seen it or remember it. But the Desert Alphabet is used uh, frequently in that film. It's kind of a plot device. And it, it's exactly that kind of idea. If you remember, the, the plot has something to do with uh, these beehive-type aliens from the planet Kolob, etc. right? Fill in the gaps. Read more about it. It's really a fascinating piece of art. But the Desert Alphabet comes up uh, in it in that sense of being something mysterious, being something kind of weird about 19th century Mormon history. Um, And so I certainly wouldn't discourage anybody from embracing that kind of strange otherworldly quality that it has, even though it was developed, you know, the academic in me has to say, it was developed for very run-of-the-mill prosaic reasons. It was not really developed to have this kind of mysterious quality. But I'm really happy that you bring it up because I think that the renaissance of the Deseret Alphabet, the rebirth of it that we're seeing in the late 20th and early 21st century is precisely because it's mysterious and cool. So regardless of whether or not the brethren thought it was gonna be this magical divination thing, um, which, you know, there's no evidence for it, but I kind of think it's cool to imagine that they did. um, I think that people, are experiencing it as a kind of esoteric um, appendage of of the Mormon uh, Mormon movement, and uh, I encourage them to think about it that way. I want to take another break, real quick. Uh, when we come back, uh, there is a question we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. Plus, I got some other things that we'll kind of address as we talk a little bit more about your project. Uh, we'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. <laughs> 
Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember, if you want to see the video of today's interview, you have to become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. And for as little as $5 a month, you can see the many books that lie behind Neil, and I am told they are real books. It looks like there are statues. I want to say that that is a horse and carriage of something as I look closer. You won't know what I'm talking about if you are not a Patreon saint. Again, as little as five bucks a month, go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So one of the things that within this project that I hope, I hope whether it's by you or by someone else that will develop it and, and, Probably the ask on this is fairly difficult, but I'd love to be able to go to a website and type something in and have it instantly be translated. Is that something that uh, is happening, is available, uh, is a thought, is out of your guys's realm of what you want to accomplish? Let's talk about that for a minute. There was a platform to Deseret.com that for a long time was available that would do just that. You would type it in English, it would do the translation to the phonetic, and then it would convert that to Deseret. That went down sometime in the past year. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who actually maintained it. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, I'm, una I'm unable to, to dig that up. So I, I wouldn't mind reviving a tool like that and, and having that out there. And you know, if it's on some university hardware, then we can probably keep it alive indefinitely because right. The university is kind of where things go to live forever. And, uh, well, and I, and I think to that point that, that, that seems to me to sort of drive the Renaissance because one of the other things that I've, I've sort of talked about is that being able to see this a little bit more, we've mentioned, you know, these books, um, certainly with the, the Joseph Smith papers and other history projects within the, the history department of the church, publishing these things. And we see these characters, people that don't know about the Deseret Alphabet go, ooh, what's that? And want to know more. But also, uh, I, I think there's a big place for it. And maybe this is none of uh, the three of us that would do something like this. But it seems to me like a clothing line or some sort of something with Deseret Alphabet. Not for everyone, but it seems to me like there would be that niche enough of a group of people that'd be like, oh, what is that? Oh, oh, you don't get it. Oh, you don't understand. Oh, that's that's too bad. It's just it's just a little Deseret on my shirt or my hat. I'd be surprised if there weren't uh, some drop shipping company online platform that someone wasn't already doing that. Well, then I'll have to track those folks down and get them to sponsor this episode. I'm just uh, yeah, guys. Like I, something that I am curious about, and, and and I guess I have my guesses in the back of my mind. It's always a little uncomfortable when I ha ask this question, but I am curious to know, are you both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or is this just an interest? We'll start with you, Ryan. I am definitely a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm uh, an eighth-generation uh, Mormon. What about you, Neil? 
I don't remember how many generations, but I'm, I'm also uh, many generations. Um, I, I probably the, the most famous ancestor is King Follett, who's mainly famous for dying, but <laughs> there, thereby achieved a certain kind of uh, cultural immortality. Uh, I because I I just find it fascinating and and within the 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 study of historical things within the church there are a lot of people that just find us to be a peculiar or fascinating people and can latch onto something like this like an alphabet like a you know uh, the reformation of the the LDS church back in the 1850s and they just latch onto that and then I get to this point in this discussion and go surely you're a member of this church and they go oh no nope not a chance. Not, you know, I wouldn't. I just find this particular, you know, aspect of, of it fascinating. Do you guys make it your mission, uh, not pun intended, but maybe, to tell people about the Desert Alphabet? Or do people know, and if they have questions, they just come to you? Honestly, if you write much in it at all, sooner or later you're going to get a question about it. It's visually distinctive enough that people may wonder if it's... Uh, you know, a, a Southeast Asian script or something like that, but just occasionally writing things in it, you know, uh, some of my notebooks are labeled in Deseret, for instance, I get a fair number of questions just from having such things present. And, and, and it always leads to an interesting conversation. I was going to say, it, there's either two ways that that conversation goes, hey, what is that? And you just go, shh, we don't <laughs> talk about that. Or... Uh, an introduction into into what all that is. What about for you, Ryan? Do you do you people do you find yourself sort of proselyting about this desert alphabet, or are you kind of the guy that that within your ward people go, I don't know, he does he writes in something different, and we just don't ask about it. We just we turn the other way. Well, we I I know we don't, haven't really been that public about it for that long. So they did this news bureau piece on it, and so it's really kind of in the earliest stages for me. Uh, I've noticed that one of my graduate students has, he's, he, without any, uh, you know, even before the, this, this article came out from the Illinois News Bureau, um, he was sending me notes in Deseret. So he had picked up on it somehow. And he doesn't have a connection to the, to the faith so far as I'm aware. And it's not even something that I explicitly talked to them. So he must have looked at it as like, this is a puzzle. I'm going to figure this out. And he's a very bright guy. So he did figure it out. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, I, I know that our time is short. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I will ask those of you now. Uh, we'll go Ryan, Neil, and then for the second question, we'll go Neil, Ryan, and then whoever wants to ask the answer to the third question can go in whatever order. First question is, is do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? Starting with Ryan. I do not have a calling. Neil. I'm involved with the uh, teacher's quorum and then elders quorum activities, so... Awesome. Funny Neil, case. if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Um, I would probably jump for something that's related to church historians office. If I were going to get involved in that, there's, there's so many fascinating documents. You know, we have an old stake center here. And when I was a ward clerk a while back, I went digging through the files and found uh, signed first presidency letters dating back into the 1940s. Oh, wow. So just sitting in the filing cabinet there. So, you know, identifying and preserving a lot of this stuff is interesting. And then there's a lot of early digital age materials that you can still find five and a quarter floppies in this that would be fantastic to work with and, and do preservation on. 
Wow. And the kids that are like five and a half inch, five and a half inch floppies, I don't even know what he's talking about. Look it up, kids. It's right next to your Betamax. What about you, Ryan? If you could pick a calling, what would you pick? You know, I, I, I did this once and I would do it again. It's always just kind of nice to stand in the temple and smile and say hello to people when they come in. Uh, that's awesome. Beautiful, too. The last question we ask, uh, we ask of everyone, whether they're uh, members of our faith or not, uh, but we ask them the question, what is your favorite part of your faith? And ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? I think I'd have to double down on Book of Abraham. There, There's so much great stuff in there. There's so many it hints at these um, majesties and mysteries and things that are well attested in other parts of non-scriptural Mormonism. Uh, but it, it's kind of this, this nexus for interesting ideas around intelligences and creations and glories and matter and the nature of, of man and God. I love it. All right, Ryan, you get to bring us home. I love the prophet Joseph Smith and everything about him. I love the, his story. I love his creativity. I love the inspiration that he drew from heaven and the amazing things he did in his time on earth. And I'm so proud to be a part of the um, a part of his story. Uh, and uh, as a servant of the Lord, of course, uh, I, I deeply respect and love the prophet Joseph Smith. Well, Ryan, Neil, uh, all of the uh, things that we talked about, both the, the project website as well as the article that we referenced, that'll be available in the show notes for people to be able to check out. So encourage people to do that. Uh, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you guys aren't healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Brother Brent, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, and Miracles, I told you so, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 